Today, we get to rally around the gospel in a passage about the mark of the beast. Um, so if you are a guest with us, you are, you are maybe it's your first Sunday, you have dropped in on a church going through the book of Revelation, and you also dropped in right when we were about to approach this passage of the mark of the beast. So go ahead and get your Bibles out. We are going to be in Revelation 13, and we're going to be through verses 11 through 18 this morning. And something that I love as you're turning there about the book of Revelation is that we have quite literally just gotten to watch with anticipation on what God might reveal next. If you remember in the beginning of the book, this is Revelation 1-3, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John says that we are blessed if we read this book out loud. Um, so we are going to do that. We're going to read this passage, let it sit before us before we pray. But I want to... Um, challenge you a little bit even before we get to that point. You need to understand that we are about to hear from God. We're gonna hear from God in all the strangeness and all of the speculation and maybe the anticipation of seeing what in the world does 666 mean. We are about to hear from God himself and my goal today is to back way up and let the word have its way among us. I want you to see the glory of Jesus revealed and I want you to see in your life, endurance and faith that you would run the race of your life and ministry for the glory of God alone. And in order to do that, which I believe is John's goal through, as the Holy Spirit inspires this text through the Apostle John, I think his overarching theme for us is that this book is designed to make us endure and conquer and finish the race. And in order to do that, God in his infinite wisdom decided that we need to know about another beast. The first one came out from the sea. This one is coming out from the earth. And we need to know about the mark of this beast. And you don't need me to tell you there's perhaps no other passage in the Bible that has been twisted or, or used or maybe even referenced in pulp culture and entertainment um, quite, you know, maybe even ever more than this one. So we're going to need wisdom to see this for what it is and live Accordingly, So if you already are there, hopefully you've had time to get there. I'm going to read Revelation 13, 11 through 18. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray. Um, Father, we come to you right now humbly knowing that you have um, truth for us to not only learn but to receive and apply 
in our hearts this morning. Um, God, we need help. Um, as you say, we're called to use wisdom in discerning this. Uh, so I pray now just for church family and for guests that are here this morning, Lord, that you would use this text to make us more like Christ, more equipped to advance his kingdom until you return. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you're taking notes, the title of this sermon is taken directly from verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Now, we know in the Bible that in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is defined, or at least the beginning of wisdom is defined, as the fear of the Lord. We also know that the Bible defines wisdom as pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere in the book of James. And we are going to need a lot of that as we walk through these verses this morning. Um, one of the things that I'm thankful for in um, just the three weeks of meditating and preparing on the mark of the beast, which you don't say that sentence every day, um, and I have been very thankful for a lot of these incredible authors and scholars that have used this word to feed my soul. So a lot of, if not all of these interpretations or help, um, I've been examining and cross-referencing with other scholars in the book of Revelation. Uh, particularly a few sources that I want to talk about later in this sermon so that you can get help on your own study. But all in all, we are going to need to lean into this imagery to wake us up if we are going to endure and conquer and live wisely in our culture and age. So let's back up for some context, especially if you are only been here for this week. Um, the last two sermons, and the three now including this one, we have been looking at something that most people would agree is the unholy trinity. Um, do you remember two weeks ago, this was the Christmas in July sermon, where the dragon was, you know, there was this big dragon, there was a war, and then he was trying to devour um, a little baby. I mean, can you imagine that Christmas card, right? Like there's a dragon on the front with a little baby, it's like, hey, Merry Christmas, you know, dragon and baby. Um, but what we saw is that this begun the unholy trinity. We saw in that dragon an apocalyptic image of Satan, or the anti-God the Father, he is a deceiver, he's a destroyer, he hates you, he hates God's people, and the Bible makes it clear that in some sense he has authority right now. But as Adam has made clear to us over and over, even when we see these big, scary, apocalyptic images, Satan is on a leash. There is no cosmic arm wrestling match happening where the lamb and the dragon are squaring off as if we don't really know who's going to win. God is sovereign even in these intense um, scenes of our spiritual enemies. So we have the unholy trinity, the dragon, anti-God the Father. Then last week we saw the beast from the sea or anti-God the Son. To start out that beast, if you remember, we saw flashbacks from Daniel's visions in the Old Testament of nations that he compared to beasts. And if you remember, all of these kind of different nations culminated, sort of, in this, we don't 100% we don't know for sure, but what it seems like is that these beasts culminated into one sort of representative beast-like nation in the beast from the sea. And these beasts are signs to show us the evil forces at work in our day against the people of God. So that beast, the beast from the sea, showed us military power and might and violence and domination, especially over God's people. Now, I want to challenge us as Americans. It is easy for us to let the freedoms of our nation dilute our abilities to see this reality happening right now. Just because we live in a nation that isn't killing its own Christians doesn't mean that we aren't a nation enthralled with hatred and violence. 
I don't need to show you abortion statistics or murder rates or the hatred that is evident just by looking on our own social media posts. Every nation and every person on earth is predisposed because of their sin to worshiping the beast from the sea. We love power, we love to dominate people, and we love to exert ourselves over others. Now, that's just some practical applications of how it makes sense that people would actually have no problem worshiping a beast that presented himself like that. But even now, lest we forget our persecuted brothers and sisters, the beast of persecution and violence and domination is roaring and prowling right now as our brothers and sisters in the faith are being killed simply for following the Lamb. And this is why that section ended with verse 9 and 10. It should be on the screen. If you remember this, it says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. And here's the idea. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So a call for us as we approach our next spiritual enemy, we have to remember that we should not be ignorant of the cost of following Jesus. And by his grace, let's endure and keep the faith. So we've got anti-God the Father, anti-God the Son, and then as you can imagine, what we have today is the beast from the earth, anti-God the Spirit. Now, in my research, uh, the beast that we have to examine today has seemed to represent everything from the economic systems that keep people in line with the first beast to false teachers who manipulate people into worshiping the state and the power of it. So we need to examine all of this in light of the text itself and see what God would have for us in the word. If you want a quote to kind of summarize, uh, this is one of the books that I would highly recommend called Discipleship on the Edge by Daryl Johnson. He says this, talking about the unholy trinity. The dragon mimics the father, the sea beast mimics God the son, Jesus Christ the lamb. And the earth beast mimics God the Holy Spirit. As the father gives his authority to the son, so the dragon gives his authority to the sea beast. As the Holy Spirit seeks to move us to worship the son and the father, so the earth beast seeks to move us to worship the sea beast and the dragon. So, if that's the case, we need to have an approach to how we will break this down. And here's kind of the, the tracks that I want to run on with, with all of us um, today, because I think something I felt in my own soul when I was um, interpreting and, and working on Revelation is I think it's easy to do in any book of the Bible, but especially Revelation, it's easy to want to just make the sermon arguing for your interpretation of Revelation, right? It's easy to say, well, I land here and in this camp and all these people are wrong, so let me just give a lecture on why I'm right. Um, that would be horrible preaching. That basically just makes the point, the interpretation, and not the point of glorifying Jesus, so, with that being said, there still is a lot of foolishness with these texts. This sermon is not designed to give us knowledge about the Bible. These beasts are important for us today. If you remember, people are not our enemies. We wrestle against principalities and spiritual enemies, and what the Bible is trying to show us is what that battle is like. So we have to ask, every time we look at a symbol or a description of one of these beasts, we have to ask, what does this mean? We need to let each biblical, apocalyptic image not only move our minds, but move our hearts, asking, what does God want us to know? What does God want us to feel? What does God want us to do in response to these images? Then we need to ask, what does this mean for us? We need to let the rest of the New Testament and the whole counsel of the scripture give us instruction 
on what we must do in response to these spiritual enemies. So we'll do that. We're going to walk through it line by line. We're going to ask, what does this mean? How should this change us? And then at the very end, which I can't wait to get to, we will run to our king, the lamb king who conquers and defeats every dragon and every beast and is coming back to end all evil forever and ever. And we are going to get there. But first, let's walk through the second beast. Verse 11 should be on the screen. So it starts out. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Now, a few things to notice. First, notice that it says saw, so already it's showing us that he is another sign. He's seeing something that God is giving him to clarify spiritual realities. So he sees something, and then there's another beast. Now, it's worth asking. He could have, God could have given a sign of anything, but instead he shows something that is scary and meant to show off evil power. There's something about this. You can imagine a beast rising out of the earth I mean, where my mind always goes to when I'm thinking about this is like Godzilla movies. Um, It's just like you think about this image of what is that supposed to invoke? What is that supposed to show us? Not, ah, we don't really need to do much about that. Like if you saw a beast rising out of the ocean and then another one rising out of the earth, our response would not be, let's watch Netflix tonight, right? And I'm not trying to be funny. This is the real thing. If these images are designed to show us the spiritual battle that we are in, The response is not to yawn at these beasts. The response is to see them and realize that these are designed to show off evil power. And then we see the first descriptions of this beast. Another beast rising out of the earth. Here's what it's like. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. Now, where else have we seen this lamb imagery in Revelation? With Jesus, right? Jesus is our lamb, he's the lamb that's slain, he's the lamb that's conquering. So already what we see is that this is clearly a counterfeit. Um, If you're curious, the two horns is interesting because you would think that if there was a counterfeit to the Jesus lamb, he would have seven horns, right? That was the idea that we've been given. Um, Some scholars would say that these two horns are maybe supposed to mean the two lampstands or maybe the two witnesses, if you remember a few weeks ago. The point is, is that this beast is trying to masquerade as the people of God. But watch watch what happens here. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. This spiritual enemy looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. It is very, quite literally, a dragon in sheep's clothing. So that's what we have to know first. Powerful enemy masquerading as being on the good side of the spiritual war, looks like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. Look at verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So you need to know that maybe even in your own Bibles, there's like a little note beside that phrase, in its presence. Um, Some translations will translate in its presence to on its behalf. So you could think it exercises all the authority of the first beast, either in its presence or on behalf of the first beast. But notice, this is important for us, notice what this beast is designed to do. Make the people of the earth worship political power and institutions. You understand this? If the first beast represents the state and government and evil empires, cultural powers against the kingdom of God, the second beast, what it's trying to do is make the earth and its inhabitants worship those things. And this is where we get the idea of the unholy spirit. 
The Holy Spirit, one of the Holy Spirit's job is he is, he is supposed to lead the people of God in the worship of Jesus Christ. So this beast is leading people of the dragon to worship the beast from the sea. And then we get a reminder, it's so interesting how often this comes up in this, in this book. We get a reminder that the first beast had a wound that healed. Did you catch that? The inhabitants worshiped the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Scholars say this most likely is a reminder that you can't really kill this beast. He will always keep coming up. When one evil empire falls, another one rises in its place. And we have seen that happen over and over again in world history. I mean, you can think how people in Nazi Germany during that time would have read this book. They would have no doubt thought, man, evil totalitarian regime attacking people, this would make sense, right? So they would probably, once again, they're gonna, we're going to get into the different views of how we could actually look at this, but you can imagine that this is not really that new of a concept. People giving complete allegiance to something that is evil, and that is what this beast is designed to do. People of the dragon worship this beast, representing power, political, cultural power. Okay, so you kill one empire, they always keep coming up. What we need to see here is that this beast is powerful and we need someone more powerful to destroy it for good. Okay, let's take a break and talk about what we need to know so far in this beast. You need to know that one way that our enemy attacks the church is to manipulate the people of the earth to worship political power and institutions that are opposed to Christ's power and his kingdom. And you need to know that this is real today. There are false teachers who look lamb-like but are actually speaking dragon. And this usually comes, from, comes in the form of causing people to worship the political culture of their nation, often through the use of forceful hatred and violence. This should sound familiar. Verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, here's another key, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. There's that reminder once again. Hey, remember, you can wound or kill, but it is still alive. So what else do we learn about this beast? We see that this beast also performs great signs, counterfeit signs, counterfeit miracles, ultimately designed to deceive. You see that? The point of this spiritual enemy is to deceive people. The goal of the deception, right in the text, for people to make an image for the beast. So once again, religious and worship language being used to deceive people into absolute allegiance to empires and to cultures. So what we're seeing here is when people allow this beast to influence their hearts and minds, we see the compromise of people to let their theology, what they know about God, bow to cultural acceptance. I want to say that again. If this is true, this is the unholy spirit designed to religiously motivate people into promoting and serving an empire or a culture, then you need to understand one of the ways that the spiritual enemies of our day operate is to put religious fervor and worship language behind compromising to the culture. So, historical context here, according to historians that I read, religious, um, in this time, religious leaders, quote-unquote religious leaders, were the most aggressive proponents of emperor worship in the first century. 
Think about that. I even read where religious leaders were the first ones to want to put up statues in worship of the emperor. I mean, you could see that if they saw that just worshiping this emperor would give them more clout and more acceptance and more cultural popularity, why would they not put the statue up? If they could still feel good spiritually, but also be directly in line with the culture in which they lived. And you can see how this would easily become religiously motivated destruction of the followers of Christ. Can you imagine? What are the first century church? They said, you know, people wanted them to say, no king but Caesar, but they said, no king but Jesus. That gets you killed in that day. Part of this book is to warn and give us a challenge to use wisdom to know in the name of our Savior, are we bowing to cultural ideas and the powers of our day? Jesus warned us of this, that this could lead to death for Christians. John 16, 1 and 2 says this, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming, look at this verse, that when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Think about that. It's coming a day, Jesus is warning us, it's already happening, how many extremist groups are killing Christians all across the world as an offering to God. This power is at work in our world today. And our challenge now, in this context, in this century, is to ask ourselves, where is our theology bowing to cultural acceptance? Because even if they aren't killing Christians, you've got to ask, why would people compromise in this way? Why would they do it? Is it just only for cultural acceptance? Was it convenience? Was it laziness? Was it financial gain? Was it just a desire to please people? What seems clear from this text and this apocalyptic image is that political power needs religious or at least moral and spiritual fervor in order to destroy people and oppose God's kingdom. When people feel a moral obligation to promote a culture that they align with, that is when the danger comes. And that is exactly what this enemy exploits with this beast. Look at verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. See what is happening again here. This beast, quote unquote, gives breath to the other beast so that the powers, the cultural values might look more attractive and even destroy those who disagree. There's something about how cultural, political, anti-God stuff gets its power and fervor from spiritual and and, uh, moral obligation. We see this all the time in every culture that's ever existed. People have cultural values that are against the Bible, but they claim is on Team Jesus. It's happening all the time. Here's what you need to know. What we need to know from this beast so far is that it most likely, please hear me say most likely, I know that I could be wrong in this, but at least right now, it most likely seems to represent false teaching in the church that claims you can have allegiance to Christ and allegiance to a culture propped up by political influence and power that has values that are contrary to God's word. I'll say it again. It most likely represents false teaching in the church that claims you can have allegiance to Christ and allegiance to a culture propped up by political influence and power that has values that are contrary to God's word. And this makes sense. 
considering we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, it would make sense that solid interpretation of these beasts would be pictures, scary pictures at that, that are designed to show us what we are up against. And this is especially beast-like when worship of the cultural values and political power is done in the name of Jesus. This beast wants you to trust in powerful entities for your security, worth, and acceptance, and not in Christ. Where else we kind of get some of this idea is that this beast, how Adam talked about last week, that first beast um, oftentimes is kind of touted as the Antichrist. A lot of times this second beast Um, three other times at least in the book of Revelation, is actually called the false prophet. So in Revelation 16, 13, it shows the unholy trinity working together. Revelation 19, 20, it shows the false prophet being captured and thrown into the lake of fire. Amen, that's coming one day. Revelation 20, 10 shows another image of Satan being thrown down into the lake of fire where the false prophet already is. So that combined with the religious kind of spiritual language of this beast makes most people agree that this beast is designed to infiltrate, to look like Christianity, but in fact it's using Christianity to actually worship other gods. Okay, all that being said, let's talk about this number. Verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So let's break this down. One thing that we see is at least one more function of this beast. Um, You see in verse 16, right at the the beginning of that section, it says it causes all. So it's another function of what this spiritual enemy is doing in our culture. But I want you to notice something, that this spiritual enemy is non-discriminatory in his evil work. Do you see that? Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, goes out of his way to say it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, all of the people of a society. This evil force shows no discrimination in the way that he manipulates people, which means no culture is enlightened enough to not fall for this deception. In fact, the intellectual elites of our day that deny the Bible is absolute truth are the ones who are actually already falling for this beast. Think about that. You can't be too smart to outsmart this. It's not your status or your social clout or your intelligence or the degrees that you have. Any type of person can fall for this deception, and oftentimes, at least in our culture, it's the ones that are the most intellectually powerful that already are falling for this deception. So notice, this mark has two descriptors. First one, It is on the right hand and the forehead of the people, and also it will not let you buy or sell unless you have it. And then we see that this mark is the name and the number of the beast's name, so we gotta address these one by one, all right? The first thing is the right hand and the forehead, which, just wondering, probably most of you who've ever heard of the mark of the beast knew that it had something to do with a forehead and right hand. Is that that fair, a few head nods? Okay, this this is interesting, because as I'm studying this, and, you know, I'm, I haven't read the booklet that Adam found at Blackwater Falls, but I'm assuming that it, it talks about, I'm, you know, can't judge a book by its cover. I'm assuming that that book is wrong. Okay, so 
if you, if you think about this, it's easy for us to kind of apply this directly, right? You're thinking, okay, forehead and, and wrist. You're thinking, oh man, is it the Apple Watch? Or like all of these things. Like it's easy for us to get caught up on these things while, while abandoning normal interpretive strategies for the Bible. Here's what I mean. This language of sealing on your forehead has already been used in Revelation 7 where God makes his mark on his people on their forehead. And I don't hear many people arguing that we all have that right now. See what I'm saying? Like we already see this idea of forehead representing something with the people of God. It is easy in our sensationalist kind of interpretation to assume this must mean that something is gonna get implanted in us. But this language is not just in Revelation. It's used in the Old Testament as well. If you remember the, uh, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, after talking about the commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, verse six, um, Deuteronomy 6, 8 says this, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. What's he trying to say here? This is to be all-encompassing for you. You should love the Lord your God with your whole being and love people. This should be ever before you. My point here is that this, does not, this doesn't have to mean that there will be a chip implanted in your forehead or that you will get 666 injected in your arm with a vaccine. There very well may be some sort of end times religious political system that makes people have a mark, but if we keep with this theme of this beast representing false teaching that masquerades as Christianity, this can become a little more clear. Um, if you are dying to know what these things mean, it still says forehead, it still says right hand. One theologian says that this could represent um, an ideological commitment to false religion or your worldview, your forehead, where your brain is, and the practical outworking of it with your hand. So this could very well mean this mark showing that people who follow the dragon have a worldview that is anti-God and they behave in a way that is anti-God. I think it's a fair way to see this. Um, false demonic religion is not only believing the wrong things, but it's doing the wrong things as well in the name of Christ. Um, or perhaps for our day, approving of things that are sin in the name of Jesus. Romans 1.32, Paul anticipates, I think, this and probably saw it in his day over and over. And, and think about how poignant this can be for our culture today. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Just to be real, some of you all need to check your social media feeds. Does your online presence, what you comment on, what you accept, and what you try to give the indication that you approve of, does it reek of 666? Do you approve of things that God says is sin? Sexual immorality, unwholesome talk, gossip, Slander. How many of you get entertained by slander on the internet? These things are unholy. And if your worldview is consumed with things that are against the Bible and the practical outworking, sometimes quite literally with your right hand, with an iPhone, typing, is enslaved to things that are against the kingdom of God. You need to understand that exalting self over God or approving things that do is ultimately a religious service to this beast. Now, let's talk about the tricky won't buy or sell. Um, this phrase and idea is where some of the kind of, I mean, you, my cards are kind of on the table, I hold a pretty aggressively metaphorical view of Revelation. 
Um, but this is where I'll admit, in the view that I normally hold, had some issues. I, got, I kept hitting this buy or sell speed bump over and over again in prep. Um, the other common way to view these beasts is to see them culminate in an actual person or an antichrist that uses government and religion to make the nations worship him. Maybe a lot of y'all maybe thought that or have read that or maybe that's a common view, it's a very common view. And with this view in mind, people see this mark combined with economic control as the way this will happen. So if you ever heard in the discussion of Revelation things like we should be afraid of a one world government or a cashless society, et cetera, et cetera, that is where some of this idea would come from, is if you don't have this mark, you don't buy or sell. Um, and what is interesting, um, in, in most of the commentaries that I studied that kind of, kind of more align with the view that I hold of Revelation, a lot of it just kind of ignored this phrase. <laughs> it was like, I'm like, come on, man, like, don't buy or sell. What does this mean? And I'm like reading these, and it's just kind of like, won't buy or sell. Almost like, let the reader understand. And I'm like, I don't understand. You really need to help me. So this is difficult. What is, it, what is going on? This beast coming from the earth has a mark, and if you don't have it, you can't buy or sell. So if John had in mind the historical context of what was going on in that day, we have good reasons to think that this is actually referring to the Roman seal that was required for business contracts or on their money. That's fair. He's saying if, if they saw the evil empire of Rome as this representation of the beast and you couldn't buy or sell without the mark of Rome, um, quite literally, if you didn't have the mark of Rome on your money, then you can't buy or sell things without money. That's fair. But either way, it most likely represents the way that cultures will give their stamp of approval through economics on things that they already approve of. So, what I mean is, is there is a very real way, if you take a stand in some way with, in, let's say in your city that is an unpopular view, there's a chance you could lose business for that, right? Um, heard of financial boycotts, things like that. You can see how cultures um, can quite literally end a business if they don't like it. So that's, that's possibly one way. Um, but if it does represent just in general the way that a culture will economically give their stamp of approval, it may or may not actually result in economic persecution. But for us today, this is another important reminder that this is happening to the people of God in our world right now, even if we are unaware of it in our everyday lives. You need to understand that we have family and countries that literally cannot buy or sell because they are Christians. But for us today, it's not our case, but it's worth asking and understanding the way that you spend your money will show what you worship. Are you spending money like you belong to the kingdom of God or like you belong to the kingdom of the dragon of materialism and comfort and convenience? You need to ask these questions. Where you spend your money is most likely what you worship, shows your priorities. And I think that this beast taps into that with that phrase. So, like I said, you can agree or disagree with that. I'd love to talk more about what you might think, but that is the best kind of way I can see this interpretation and application for us today. So, let's break down the number now. So, verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for, the number, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So, obviously, this calls for wisdom and understanding. You need to know there are so many different ways that people have tried to calculate this number. Um, perhaps most popular is something called gematria. 
And this involves assigning a numerical value to Hebrew letters and letting this dictate the number of someone's name. So if I did this in our alphabet, A would be one, B would be two, C would be three, D would be four. So my name's Dustin, so I'd have to calculate four plus whatever plus whatever all the way through, and that would be the number of Dustin. Now, it is worth mentioning that the Hebrew transliteration of the word Nero Caesar does in fact come out to 666 according to the people who know how to do Hebrew transliteration. Now, the issue, though, that I was reading with this idea is that the original audience most likely spoke Greek, and this wasn't the only title for Nero, and also there was a lot of different alternative spellings for Nero Caesar. According to Johnson, the guy that I um, quoted in the beginning of the sermon, this transliteration gematria idea has too many complicated factors that would have to be manipulated. In my research, I saw everyone from Adolf Hitler to Ronald Reagan. Um, their, their name added up to 666. So let the reader understand. Um, he, he, here's what we have to know, though. What, what does this mean for us, right? Because this It's inspired by God, it's profitable for you. Something about calculating this number matters for your faith and mission in Christ. And a man, that idea of a member of a man, is key for us to see this as a powerful warning symbol in what I am convinced that it is. According to this interpretation, the number 666 is meant to represent humanity, as in not God. All throughout this Revelation series, we have seen that the number seven represents completion, Um, or the number used to describe the perfect completion of God. So this number is one less than perfect completion. 666 is always falling short. It represents the perfect incompleteness of false religion and false worship because it will never be pleasing to God. 666 is not necessarily designed to identify the beast. It is meant to describe the beast. And the false worship of the false trinity will always fall short. This helps me. Hopefully that adds some comfort to you in reading this. Um, I, quite frankly, I don't think it would take wisdom or understanding to not worship these beasts if this was necessarily literal. If we got an executive order from the federal government tomorrow that said, all of you, in order to buy things at Walmart, you will need to get a 666 vaccine in your arm and get this new microchip that Bill Gates installs in your forehead in order to eat food. I am assuming that most of you would not fall for that, right? I mean, think about that. The government was like, listen, you have to, and also worship me as God. Like, most of us are not gonna be like, honestly, I'm, sign up for that. That chip sounds good, like I want Walmart. The, so that is interesting, this helps me because it most likely doesn't take wisdom and understanding to not fall for that. But what does it mean for us? If this is meant to show how the beast of false teaching deceives the people of God and the people of the earth, then it is clear that we need wisdom. And for us as the people of God today, it is time for us to stop acting like false teaching is not dangerous. If this is what the number and the beast mean, then we would be free to apply this to any culture in any context. Because quite frankly, there's always gonna be persecution external threat of the first beast, and there's always going to be false teaching, the internal threat of the second beast, all controlled by the father of lies himself, the dragon. So, in the first century, the people receiving this, they would have most likely heard this as an indictment against the imperial worship of Rome. They would have been warned to not follow Nero and the culture that he built, but keep following Jesus as king. 
need to understand, people were tempted to compromise their faith in Jesus in the name of political cultural acceptance, gladly worshiping the beast in the name of religion. And this is a terrifying reality that is still alive for us today. In an effort to gain the whole world and still have Jesus, they lost their soul. And as mentioned earlier, this could have been talking about emperor cult worship, but the devastating thing is that it leaks into the people of God through compromise. False teachers are everywhere. Jesus and Paul both warns us about them in our Bibles. Not only are false teachers everywhere, false teaching is everywhere. It has never been easier to get beast and dragon-like teaching right into your minds and into your right hands. Our media is full of false teaching. Our commercials are full of false teaching. And in the most devastating reality, a lot of churches are full of false teaching. So if that's the spiritual enemy that we're up against, what does this mean for us? How do we wake up to this reality? And I want to beg you, just as a brother in Christ and a fellow church member, for those of you in the HCC church family, we have to care about truth. You need to understand that this calls for wisdom and understanding, and if we are not pursuing this by the Spirit in the Word, we are not above getting deceived. We're not. We can very easily be allured by the shininess of our culture into believing things that are contrary to God's Word. This is designed to wake us up as a church. So the first thing, a challenge for us based on this passage, know the truth and recognize lies. Do not let religion interfere with your relationship with Jesus. We do not have a man-made system. We have a God-made way to worship him in spirit and in truth. And quite frankly, I don't have time to break down a cross-reference list that shows us all the ways that we are called to stand for truth and discern the spirits and to know these things. But suffice to mention is that it is a little bit fascinating to realize how many of Paul's letters deal with false teaching in the church. You ever like, it's under, like in your reading through the New Testament, if you realize this, it seems like every letter, he's, his concern is not only right practice, but you know, gotta, you know, get rid of these Judaizers over here. You all are wandering into myths over here. Like, stay true to biblical doctrine. Know the truth, recognize lies. Here's one example, 2 Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Suit their own passions. This is what we have to discern. If we're listening to a truth claim, particularly about the gospel or about the way that God's kingdom works, we have to ask ourselves, is this suiting my own fleshly passions or is this actually the truth? And I'm begging you to endure sound teaching. And our last application this morning will be this. First one is know the truth, recognize lies. Second one, do not tolerate false teaching or false worship in your own life. Examine your life. It is easy for otherwise theologically sound Christians to assume that believing the right things while living for other gods is acceptable worship. A few examples in our culture. People who use Jesus to worship money. It's arguably the most prominent idol in American culture is money. Do you use Jesus as a mascot to cheer on your pursuit of the American dream? You have to ask yourself these things. Jesus explicitly says that we can't worship God in money. So we have to ponder our path and ask ourselves if we're allowing the beastly allure of money to bend our eyes away from the lamb and onto the beast dragon. What about people who use Jesus to worship politics, which is really just a combination of power with ideals and values that are imposed on a people that create a culture? You need to ask yourself, do you let your theology get dictated by politics? 
For some of you, your beast isn't something roaring out of the ocean or the land. Your beast looks more like an elephant or a donkey. I'm not trying to be funny here. You have to ask. Understand, when Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world, he means that. Are you letting the cultural values of our day change your theology? Are you tossed to and fro by every new wind and doctrine or cool Facebook post where someone gets pwned? Do you realize that any theological system that attempts to undermine the word of God reeks of beast worship, especially when it aligns with political and cultural powers and the cultural ideas of our day? Use Jesus to worship money. Use Jesus to worship politics. Another very popular one in our culture is people who use Jesus to promote moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a big word, and I didn't Definitely is not original to me. Read this one time, but I think it's interesting. This kind of represents the religion of our day. Most sociologists would agree. Um, So let's take this down. So deism, meaning there is a God. Moralism, we should be nice to people. And therapeutic, we should do what feels best. Rest assured that the beast wants you to claim worship to Christ while pursuing your own comfort and to keep your sins hidden so everyone thinks you're nice. False religion is not just the hypocrites who prop up their morality, their morality by their made-up rules, though it is that. It is also a religion that calls itself Christian and calls things good that God calls sin in the name of the love of God. And the beast is obviously alive and well in our day. And we must fight it by loving the truth and living out that truth in love. That's bad news, right? These are powerful entities working and warring against the truth of the gospel. But if this is true, this means, most likely in a room this size, some of you have the mark of the beast on you right now. You are marked by an enemy that hates you. You've given your mind to a worldview that is anti-God. You've given your hand to serving a kingdom that is not the kingdom of Jesus. And I am begging you to wake up. Wake up. Ask yourselves these questions. Get in community so that you might have the blind spots in your life called out so that you might glorify God better. Um, I did something interesting to prepare for this last application. I asked a group text of you in our church family to listen to a bunch of false teachers and let me know how it went. Um, So I got a little bit of help from some church family in this, but I want to give you some quick things to look out for so that the most next popular sermon jam clip that you see on social media, just because it's nice and the guy looks cool, you don't get allured by beast worship, okay? These are common themes that happen in false teaching in our day. Number one, we'll go through them quick. If you want these notes, we can talk after. Number one, felt needs are more important than redemption. Felt needs are more important than redemption from sin. Number two, the Bible is not the authority on doctrine and practice. Number three, the Bible is ultimately about self-purpose and self-esteem. Um, this was a sermon I was listening, I don't know if you can call it a sermon or not, but I was listening to this episode of someone, and this is an exact quote. They were, they were preaching on the uh, story of the woman with the issue of blood that um, runs into Jesus. It's a direct quote from one of the most downloaded podcasts right now. If you search religion and spirituality, this would undoubtedly come up. Quote, the only thing the woman with the issue of the blood did to save herself was change the way she talked to herself. Direct quote, that was the gospel kicker. That was the good news. Just change the way you think and talk to yourself and you'll get saved. Here's the the big one I think for us. Another thing that false teachers do is they elevate acceptable philosophical ideas about God over biblically revealed theology of God. 
Most prominently, God's loving kindness. See, because God God is loving, there's no way he would call this sin. False teaching, reeks of 666. Another thing, don't really believe that humans are bad or sinful enough to actually need redemption. Another one, good lies within you, you just have to find it. We have the power in us to change. Your favor is coming, just speak it and believe it. These teachings reek of 666, and you need to be discerning to not fall for this stuff. It sounds good because it suits our passions. We all love being told that we have the power within us to do whatever we want. But if our greatest need is redemption, then we have to be discerning on these sermons. So I'm begging you, if you're falling into these kind of ideas, to repent of your dragon way of life and come to the lamb who was slain for you. You can. Jesus overcomes these beasts. Even if you walked here, in here, with the mark on your forehead, you can leave with the name of Jesus on your forehead, like Revelation 7. It can really happen. But for those of us who are in Christ, these images and marks may scare you, but I want to remind you to not forget that our slaughtered lamb is also the reigning savior. Because quite frankly, even though the beast will seal people with the forehead and the wrist, it's way more true that God's mark is already on us. Isaiah 49, 16 says that our names are marked up on his hands. So we are free to give our thoughts and deeds to our true king in a world full of beast and dragon worship. And our call is to endure the persecution and wisely discern the false teaching that exists in our midst. Uh, Ban, if you want to come back up, I want to give you one more thing um, just to stir your hearts for worship so that we might sing like people who are truly victorious over these enemies. Look at how these ideas of the first of these beasts come together. Um, In my reading on this, I came across and I thought it was fascinating. In the crucifixion of our Savior, the power of the first beast of political and cultural power, Rome, Pontius Pilate, and the second beast of false worship in the Jewish Pharisees, Caiaphas, come together to crucify our Lord. (laughs) On the sixth hour of the sixth day, Jesus died. And it looks as though the evil powers had won. But Jesus rose again putting these evil powers to open shame and by faith rescuing you from the false worship of our day and by faith sealing you because his name is now on our foreheads forever. And it's in that power that we wage war against the beast by showing people the way to truth and in responding in true worship to Christ until he returns to throw the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth in a burning lake of fire forever. And that is the good news that we look forward to today. Let's pray. Um, God, I just ask now that by your spirit, you would um, move us to worship. God, we know that the Holy Spirit, um, his desire for us is that our hearts and our minds are, are moved to worshiping your son. So God, I just pray right now you would do that among us, that you would bring repentance, that we would ask ourselves what worldviews we have, what kingdoms we are serving, and that we'd be quick to repent so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth and see your kingdom come in and among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.